0: Sebastian Witherspoon is the executive director of Equity Alliance MN. He has dedicated more than 20 years to helping students, staff, family, and those in leadership roles develop empathy for underserved and marginalized communities. He is currently writing his doctoral dissertation on the attributes of an anti-racist school system at St. Cloud State University.
1: Sebastian Witherspoon and I got to meet for the first time through our work with the uh, Equity Alliance of Minnesota. And it's just been super cool to get to know him and his ideas. And so I just really wanted to have him on our show so that we could just amplify his voice and hear his good works.
0: Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. I appreciate being here.
2: My, uh, my first podcast, so I'm super excited.
1: Oh,
0: you, you gotta have an
1: eye. Third eye education. Third eye.
0: my understanding is that you've done this for two decades or longer now and that you've done a lot of great things but you've shared the fact that you continue to do this job problem because in an ideal world we wouldn't need educational equity advocates why is it taking our communities and schools so long
2: yeah right off the gate i think there's a lot of factors that play into the lack of success for our historically marginalized communities and i'm really trying to be thoughtful about how I frame my language around those communities, because one of the things that's done on me in my more recent time doing this work is, I, I think we have the narrative wrong, number one. I think we are looking at people who have been dispossessed, marginalized, polarized, all these otherisms that you can think of that make them either not on the same level or uh, less than in a way that we believe that we have to save them. And we have to fix them or something's wrong with those communities. And when in fact, I think that we haven't honored the gifts and the skills and the brilliance that people bring and bridge that into a way where it works for everybody. And so we're trying to historically fit people into a box. And so I think there's an issue of class. And I think there's an issue of race as far as I'm concerned. And I think culture permeates well within both those kind of arenas. When people haven't historically fit into those boxes we have a hard time trying to figure out, well, how do we make it work for everybody because you're not playing well in the sand. And so I just think that there's this issue of class and I think there's an issue of race and I think they compound each other. And I think there's a lack of empathy in terms of identifying that we can all show up our brilliant, beautiful selves and have enough space for us to all be successful.
0: In a lot of my conversations with people who have made this their life's work, that when these positions get created we are giving ourselves an excuse to not be empathetic to say you know this is going to be sebastian's job to be empathetic as opposed to all our jobs to be empathetic and there's a lot of research showing that for example a diversity coordinator once hired can decrease the rate of hiring for everyone else and i think that making it so that it's someone else's job to think about and be empathetic is a problem in its own right but also As someone in a position that may allow others to continue marginalizing or to lack empathy, how do you make sure that they don't just abdicate their responsibilities?
2: I think part of the job is to increase one's empathy quotient.
0: I think that's what we're trying
2: to do. It's not that teachers don't have the right strategies. It's not that we're significantly under-resourced financially in school systems. I'm not saying that we have enough money, but I think you would see growth and achievement if a lot of our students believe that the people in front of them who are there to expand the horizons you would see that if they believe that they truly cared about them authentically part of the reason that education became a calling to me is because i really wanted to be a role model and to share and i kind of identify ways and pathways that allow me to be whatever i want to be beyond what the world told me the options i had and so Part of doing that is showing people a pathway and saying, look at we're so much more than just what you see. And that's true for everybody. And if you get into relationship with me and if you get to know about me, it'll allow you to increase your empathy for who I am as a human being. So tapping into whatever it is that will bridge this kind of lack of humanity, lack of caring, lack of expectations, What we've seen in terms of change are the relationships that people directly have with each other, but they're not broad enough. I don't think we just have enough relationships around the students who are suffering with the people who actually make the decisions. so that connection.
0: What's your dissertation on? Leadership efficacy. Are you doing research? Are you gathering resources? Is there anything you could share
2: with us? It's a mixed method study and the premise is, after there's some type of environmental, do teachers and leaders feel like after they've gotten the information, the results where they're doing well and where they maybe can grow that area, do they feel like they have the efficacy to to kind of lead that work in school districts? I I totally have a response already, but I don't wanna ruin my dissertation because I can't be too biased about what I think that the data tells me.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, you should know what your bias is entering so that you can be aware and reflect on it and make sure that you're approaching things in multiple angles. So what is that bias? What is it that you you think?
2: I'm a Minnesotan. Are you both Minnesotans? Yes, sir. Okay.
0: And are you both
2: familiar with achievement integration funds? We have them, absolutely. Okay. So they're not new to the state. They go back, you know, as far as I remember, late 70s, early 80s. These funds have been around for quite some time, and we've been talking about specifically equity in Minnesota for well over 25 years. And we may have not called it equity back then. And we wrap it up in other languages like cultural responsiveness and other initiatives, but it's really this idea of equity and how do we all do well. We have spent millions and billions of dollars on the issue of identifying how we can increase achievement for certain communities. And we failed then, and we're failing now as a state. And when you think about how we align in terms of 50 states, historically, we've always plummeted towards the bottom of achievement gaps for historically black and brown kids, right? And so my bias is that my bias is just because someone puts something really well together on paper and they read it. The reality is that they probably know 90% of that stuff already. The challenge is that we limit ourselves in being creative about how we see kids and what we can do to help
0: them. I'd be really interested to hear current students within this context, because my bias would say you are correct, sir. And I think that there is power in hearing the continuum of experience. It's easy for someone to hear what you're saying, and go, oh, things have changed. But to get that context, I think would be really interesting
1: a few weeks ago you said something about how you were wondering why you were wondering why it takes so long why are we still needing to do this work you know and it was a real moment of vulnerability of sorts in that meeting because it was very clear that you were frustrated that's like the smallest word I can attach to the emotion you are showing. And this is a question that's coming from a very privileged place. How can we help people who are in privileged positions embrace the discomfort that is required to do this work?
2: In my brain, intuitively, I was like, that's oxymoron. It just almost doesn't make sense to me, because if you don't have to, we can't make them. So there has to be a willingness. My history in my childhood growing up in Duluth, I had a good childhood, but I would have rather not grew up in Duluth, Okay, My parents were Southern and I was raised in a church, my father was a pastor. And so I was inculcated in in my church life, it was all African-American people from the South. In my everyday friends and school, in my formative years life, it was all white people growing up. I didn't know it then, but a lot of things I did were for safety and for belonging and for being, I wanted to be quote unquote normal and I wanted to have friends. But here's the thing, I had to do that because if I wanted to get anything, if I wanted to access anything, I had to put myself in a lot of uncomfortable spaces. But it also taught me to navigate that when I got older, doing the work I do, because I typically work with white colleagues who make decisions and particularly who are white males. And the ones that I've seen really, really care and not just give a lip service, had this general care and compassion for humanity as a whole. On the flip side there was this kind of onslaught of wanting to engage in this work because of the things that we saw relative to george floyd killing and stuff like that but that's like kind of perfunctory and you know when people are doing that for a reason just because there's a lot of pressure it's those connections that we have to people heather i think that allow us to really expand our courage because i think this work requires a significant amount of courage and i strongly believe that if anybody especially in leadership roles in education They're making an implicit decision to be courageous for every single student that walks into their school buildings. It's not that rugged individualism that America loves to talk about. It's I am because we are, that idea of Ubuntu, right? That's the premise that I operate out of, and that's a premise that my people operate out of. It's just unfortunate for me that in my trials and in my people's trials, we have to be the ones who actually suffer, but also model what we want to see at the same time.
0: You know you were talking about the oxymoron idea of why why would someone in a privileged position experience discomfort which made me consider you know what are the incentives because you talked about your own incentives to experience discomfort and i think it's interesting that we don't talk about the incentives other than the maybe morality of being good humans because there are a lot. I brought up some stats because that's who I am as you were talking. And building a diverse and inclusive community makes it so you're two times more likely to meet targets, meet or exceed targets, three times as likely to be high performing, six times as likely to be more innovative, and eight times more likely to achieve better outcomes, according to Juliet Bork and Deloitte. Just outperform everything by creating inclusive communities. That should be a clear reason Hey, you want to be better in every way possible? Well, then experience discomfort. It seems like a really easy argument to make that I don't see ever. I
1: think that one thing that I think that really gets to, and the root of my, my original question as well, I think we all have that kind of empathy quotient, as you called it, in common, at least to some degree. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here having this conversation right now. But I do think that for those people who aren't naturally empathetic, I have been kicking myself and pounding my head against tables for for years now, trying to grow empathy in people who are naturally not empathetic. If empathy and morality isn't enough, unfortunately, how can we move in the right direction without that hiccup getting in our way? And it's not a hiccup, it's a huge boulder, but how do we
2: yeah. There's some realness though to having conversations about the impact on society financially going too, right? This idea of if we have students who are coming out of school who are ill-prepared to be gainfully employed, well, there's a significant you know, blowback to that. If we can't tap into someone's, really the morality and empathy, then I think there's something to talk out them relative to the financial impact.
0: I got another stat for you. I love it. If when you post your job, here's the stat. For every two years of experience, you require you exclude 15 to 20% of underrepresented groups because they're underrepresented to begin with. Again, we're, we're educators. We should be able to take someone with no experience and train them, educate them, anybody. We should be able to take anybody and educate them. That's
2: the point. So I've been doing a lot of presentations recently, and I really came across this amazing definition of culture. It's a transferable set of skill sets and beliefs that allows a group of people to survive. But the key word is that these are transferable skill sets and beliefs. And so when I think about education some time ago, I don't know exactly when, but they changed the pathway to become a principal because they knew that it was limiting folks of marginalized communities, particularly black and brown people from being leaders in schools, right? So that was my pathway to get my principal's license was, I was never a classroom teacher, but did I teach in non-traditional ways to students every day, all day? Without question, right? And we need to do that for everything else. We know we're lacking teachers, we're lacking representation from a lot of communities. And I think that those things are thought about. If you think about even the FAFSA, the idea of when you apply for college and school loans and stuff like that to my knowledge it struck me that there's only one question on there that has anything to do with criminal intent and the question is this have you ever been charged or convicted of a drug crime and it seems like that's a little bit off topic but it's not because that's intentional and so we limit the space and the opportunity for people to have this upward mobility if you will because we don't really want a diverse representation yet i think it's the same as we say that we want to amplify student voice I don't believe that's true at all. I think it sounds cool. It looks good on paper, but at large, we're failing miserably at amplifying student voice. And so I just think these are things that are not really true, but we say they are because they make us look good.
0: Can you dig into that more?
2: In the Metro, there's a few things happening. There's Cruzman uh, uh, mendoza lawsuit that's still lingering out there. And then you have what happened as a result of that, this reimagine Minnesota kind of initiative that kicked in them across the state. And they pulled in all these Metro schools, grabbed all these resources, And they call them strategies, but they're really focus areas because as far as I'm concerned, the strategy identifies the how. To me, a focus area identifies the what you're gonna concentrate on. Amplifying student voice. That was a big one, that's what they heard. We need to get students actively engaged in their own learning. How do we do that? We solicit their feedback. When students tell us the truth, we don't like it. And if we don't like it and we don't have to be there and we don't have to succumb to that, then we're just not gonna do it. In the world that we're talking about this, idea of race, culture, ethnicity, social justice kind of world, equal opportunity for all these groups. The students have far exceeded the staff in their understanding of what it takes to kind of accomplish that. And to me, it's kind of embarrassing.
1: I have a staff example. I'm going to be careful with how I share it. Nick gave me glad. We have a, a group, our 11th grade crew in particular, they are extremely articulate. There have been a couple of times where throughout their advocacy, they have made some of our staff uncomfortable to the point to where they will come to me and say hey heather you know i have a unit on x coming up and i'm kind of thinking maybe i'll skip it because i'm not sure that i have the vocabulary to be able to navigate that conversation because my 11th graders do have that vocabulary basically what they're saying is are they going to make me feel more ignorant than i already feel and actually that that's a direct quote from one of those teachers, just to be completely honest, which I thought was pretty self-reflective. In all of those cases, except for one, we had to go a little different direction for one. We were able to create a series of lessons that really did delve into student voice, where it was a student-guided conversation, where we might ask the questions, but we're really listening for student lenses, perspectives, and answers. In two of those classrooms, that followed up with okay i'll do that but you have to be in the room i think you're exactly right there is discomfort that comes from listening to student voice because sometimes the students know things we don't know and they have insight that it's hard to admit is accurate
0: what were the tools that you or for that matter sebastian do you have any tools that would be actionable something that our listeners could do tomorrow foster voice and discomfort
1: It was just variations on a project-based approach, really.
0: Ah, vague enough that no one will know what you're talking about.
1: The project-based approach is just that concept of here are some criteria that you need to show skill and understanding in. Backward designing it with the student. Okay, so I need you to show X, Y, and Z. What's something that you're passionate about? How can you make sure that you show understanding and knowledge in X, Y, and Z? You give them these guidelines but they can bloom within them. Then the other piece is a fishbowl conversation, which is a structure where you might give some discussion points, you might give them some resources, and they bring it to the table, but what they talk about and where the direction of the conversation goes is really up to the group itself. So, So the teacher becomes a learner as well. They ultimately are guiding that conversation.
2: And I think anytime that you want to set up a conversation that one, requires vulnerability, two, may be hard for people to hear, you have to set up probably some guidelines. And so you have to norm or set up your group to have that conversation. And it reminds me really of uh, restorative practices, this idea of, you know, being a really authentic, mindful listener, but listening because, you know, we get really defensive really quickly. If you can pull those things off and really have somebody listen deeply, even if they don't agree, just hearing somebody often is enough in and of itself.
0: So we always end with what we call in the blank of three eyes.
1: What? podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately?
2: The last book I just listened to that I actually got to is, it's a controversial book, but it's called Small Great Things. And it was written by a white author and then Jodi Pico, but it was about race. And so that, that's what made it really controversial because she wrote it, but the way that it was narrated from the voices of different characters in a in book it was really thoughtful about the storyline and what was happening and the, how it interplayed in the five main characters lives. And, and I thought it was something that could happen every day to people of color in any city. And so even though it wasn't an authentic text that we called it, I thought it was really well written because her research was spot on. It required a lot of research. So small great things.
1: Sebastian, small great things, is that the Jodi Pico book that uh, starts out in the hospital with the, the babies being born Ruth. and yeah with rhythm. Yeah. That is a fantastically written novel. Yeah.
2: My favorite book though of all time is Native Son.
1: Mm. Oh that is so good.
2: That's my favorite book.
1: Mm.
2: And then there's a book called The Biology of Belief around mixing Earth kind of this kind of positiveness with religion and giving us the ability to have the choice that we have in the world we have choices basically and this is a year for me though for you all um of self-love and self-care because it's been a really tumultuous past two years
0: excellent answer our next question we really value innovation what's one innovation that you have seen recently or would really like to see i don't know if it's innovation but i'd
2: like to see a deeper level of care for one another
0: I think whatever the root is that we
2: get to that would be the innovation.
1: Listeners who are inspired by today's conversation might want to take action on their learning. What might be that first action that they could take?
2: This concept about being equity minded requires us to be really rooted and firmly planted around who we are in this work and how we show up. And I would say the first step to doing that is people really digging in and identifying their own biases and how that may limit their thinking around others.
0: Listen, I. I only met you 45 minutes ago, Sebastian, and I love you. You are awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute
2: pleasure. The, the same back at y'all. Very flattering. And so appreciate you already.
0: Thank you once again to Sebastian. And thanks to Dover Iota for supporting the second season of Third Eye. And thank you to our hosts, Nick
1: Truxel and Heather Light. And of course, thank you, Mike Terrell, for writing our theme music guest or article suggestion? Want to contribute yourself?
0: Reach out at thirdeyed.com. You've changed your desk again.
1: Nope, same spot. Really? I'm just facing a different direction.